Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome to our service tonight. We're continuing with our Great Faith series. Um, who joined us in the fast we recently had? Wasn't that amazing? And we're already seeing God answering those prayers. We are growing in so many ways. It's only the beginning of February, and God is already answering those prayers. I'm getting used to the feeling full again, and I hope um, you are too. <laughs> Tonight we're going to talk about the faith of Moses, and if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, and we're going to read from chapter 11, starting in verse 23. Chapter 11, starting in verse 23, and it says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled, sprink, sorry, sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. And it says there that Moses' parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful. So Moses' parents are called Jochebed and Aram. If you need to know, Jochebed is the mom, and Aram is the dad. I wonder if Jochebed's mother was like, oh, she's so beautiful. She looks just like a Jochebed. I'm not sure how that went. But you know, when we read about characters in the Bible, we just assume that they're Christian, don't we? But here in Exodus, Israel hasn't officially become a nation yet. We, we don't know that there was any structured religion. We don't know that there was any center of faith within that community. What they knew for sure is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had the same God, and that was why they existed. And imagine as a parent, one day, when you are actually slaves to oppressors, where you are living in a foreign land, where you are just a slave, and your masters look at you and go, you're growing too big, you're outnumbering our local population. So guess what we're going to do? We're going to cull you. Every baby boy under the age of two is going to be killed. And you're a slave. You have no rights. What do you think? What do you feel? And I love that in the book of Hebrews, it says that they looked at him and they saw that he was beautiful. He was their beautiful baby boy. And like I say, I don't know that Jochebed and Aram knew God, that they had any theology around how to access God. But what happened is when they looked at their baby boy, they, something rose in their hearts and said, this child cannot die. This is our beautiful baby, and he cannot die. Now, Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In some of the translations, it says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. What is substance? It's stuff. Faith is the, hope is the, hope is the stuff that faith is made out of. Hope is the material we cut the garment of faith out of. 
And what happened with Jochebed and Aram is when they looked at that baby and that thought rose in them, he's too beautiful to die, hope came alive in them. And you see, as soon as hope comes alive, faith kicks in. And their faith is seen by their actions. They did something. They didn't just hide under the bed. They came up with a plan. They remembered, oh, there's a princess who likes to bathe in the river down there. And a plan started forming. That plan was faith. Whether they were praying to God, whether they were crying out to God, I don't know. But because hope rose in them, faith happened. And because faith happened, they did something. You see, some of us are praying and praying and praying and praying and praying and getting frustrated because we haven't let hope come. And because hope hasn't come, there isn't faith yet. And because there's no faith, we're not doing anything. But because they had faith, now think, most of us here aren't moms, but for those of you who are moms, and think about your mom, would your mother ever pop you into a wicker basket and thrust you into the River Nile that is full of crocodiles (laughs) when the ocean is just over there? A million things could go wrong. Am I right? Because there's a space where you let that basket go and you hope against hope that not only does it reach the princess, but that the princess actually complies with your expectation and sees the beauty of your baby and decides to adopt him. They had no control over any of this, but they did something. And I believe that when they put that baby on the river, God saw their faith and Moses stepped into the greatness that was to be his life because he was alive. And you know, Moses has, has three distinct um, eras in his life, and they're all 40 years long. And I'm going to look at each one of those eras and just talk a little bit about how faith tempered him. And I've called those eras greatness flaunted, greatness denied, and greatness humbly embraced. And so... Moses was a prince of Egypt. Are you laughing at the picture, Jess? <laughs> this is um, the original Ten Commandments story. I think it's Charlton Heston. <laughs> Yul Brynner, that's who it is. Thank you, Roger. Roger's a little older than us, so he knows these things. Um, <laughs> just a little. <laughs> when you watch that movie today, the special effects are so funny. It's hysterical. But... Um, Moses was a prince of Egypt. He absolutely was a prince of Egypt. That means he got to live with all the benefits of being a prince of Egypt. That means he got all the honor, all the respect, all the riches, all the wealth, access to everything he needed. He got all the flattery. Why? Because he was a prince of Egypt. And there's no reason to, when you look at that picture, he looks like a prince of Egypt, doesn't he? And nobody who didn't know the story would know that he wasn't. Egyptian. But here's the thing with Moses. Because he was a prince of Egypt, he felt like that was his greatness. He felt that his greatness was his standing, his title, his connections, his allies. That's what he thought his greatness was. Now, there's a real space in life where every one of us at some point in our life starts asking questions about our heritage. Where do we come from? There's a space in your life where you realize that your family is unique from other families. 
for good or bad, <laughs> you realize that you do things differently from other families. And Moses is an adopted child who was actually brought up by his mom because the princess hired her to be the wet nurse. <laughs> so obviously his mom had told him about his heritage and where he came from, so he knew he was adopted. And so there he is looking like a prince of Egypt, having all the benefits of a prince of Egypt, but knowing in his heart that actually he's a Hebrew. He's an Israelite. But how are the Israelites treated in Egypt? They are slaves. They are oppressed. They are trodden on. They are less than dirt. Their babies can be killed at the whim of Pharaoh. And so I think somewhere in Moses, psychologically, that was niggling with him. And he thought that because he had all the standing, all this connection, that he could do something about it. And you see, this is arrogance, and this is the difference between arrogance and faith. Arrogance says, I can do whatever I want. Faith says, God knows best, and I can ask him, and he will tell me what is best. And then I have to do what he says. And Moses thought that he could get away with murder until he realized that he couldn't. And that story is in Exodus 2, starting in verse 11. And it says, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. And so can you see that in a moment, all of Moses' connections and standing and allies and everything he thought he had fell away like that. And the truth that he had always known was made absolutely evident. I am not an Egyptian. And I believe that this is where Moses discovered that gifts are not character. Gifts do not equate to character. We live in a world today that absolutely idolizes gifts. We raise people who are good at anything onto pedestals, and we worship them. Now, Rihanna and Beyonce, now those ladies can sing, okay? I mean, if, if, if you need a song sung, you want them to sing it, not, not Roger <laughs> or Dan. Um, <laughs> they can sing, and they sing beautifully, and it's a pleasure and a joy to listen to them sing. But I remember a few years ago when Rihanna was in an abusive relationship with Chris Brown, how on the... On Facebook and media, the world was saying, but how can she be a role model? She should be behaving differently. What are we thinking? The woman is a singer. Apart from Jesus, she's a broken, fallen human being just desperately trying to find happiness. Why do we think that her gift gives her character? All we want her to do is sing. We don't want her to lead our daughters. <laughs> And what that equates to in leadership is, this, is that leaders who do not lead from character are not leaders. And we have to take responsibility for that so that we don't just follow people blindly because they're gifted. Even in the church, we elevate gifts over 
character. And continually we see the disaster that that brings. Every one of you is gifted way beyond anything you would be able to express. You know, Adam and Eve were meant to live forever in their earthly bodies. And so I think God gave great capacity because we get bored easily, don't we? So I think all of us are more gifted than we will ever be able to express in this lifetime. Maybe in heaven we get to express the rest of it. But the point is that God is after our hearts. And yes, we should practice our gifts for the Lord and we should grow in our gifts. But gifts are not identity. Gifts are also not purpose in and of themselves. I believe that gifts are a vehicle that God can use to let your purpose flow through. That the reason I sing is different from the reason Rihanna sings. That the reason I'm good at this is different for the reason that person is good at the same thing. And it's our responsibility to go after that. You're going to hear more about our campaign uh, that's coming up, and that's all about purpose. And so gifts are not identity. I used to work at the Civic Theater before I came full-time to the church. It's quite a different world. (laughs) Um, But I remember when the ballet came to town, there would always be these moments where you could see the older prima ballerinas were really holding on tightly to their position. Because the tragedy of being a ballet dancer is is that at 27, you look like a 13-year-old, but your body is broken down. And you are no longer as strong as the 19, 20-year-olds in the troupe. And I watched some of these women begin to realize that they had built their entire identity around being a prima ballerina. And in another year, they would never stand on that stage again. Who are they when that day comes? Do you see that gifting is not purpose, it is not identity, and it is not character. Another thing about gifting is that no matter how good you are, there are a million people in this world who are better than you, and a million people who are worse. Um, some of you know that I play harp, and when I was learning harp, I was doing my grades, and I think around about fifth grade, my teacher kept saying to me, you're not using your thumbs, you're not using my thumbs, and I was looking at her going, what do you mean I'm not using my thumbs? Like, I can only use four fingers, <laughs> and the music's happy. and eventually I went and looked at some videos, and I realized, um, because so many harpists are ladies, they have small hands, and I found a video of a man who had these big man hands, and he was playing the harp, and I realized, oh, that's what she means, <laughs> And so watching the videos, I realized, okay, this is what I need to do with my thumbs. But it wasn't long, and me being a bit of a melancholic and a bit of an artist at heart, I, I stopped looking at how do you use my thumbs, and I started looking at how absolutely brilliant this guy was on the harp. I mean, he was doing pieces that I understood how impossible that was to do on a harp. And he was just making it look like he woke up in the morning and just did it, you know? Um, and it wasn't long, and I started getting deflated, and I started getting demotivated, and I didn't want to play the harp anymore. Why? Because I wasn't as good as he was. And thankfully, I have a good relationship with God, and he speaks to me. And so when I was praying one day, the Lord said, so why have you stopped playing the harp? And I was like, because, mm, you know, I'm not that good at it. And God was like, so why did you start playing the harp? And I realized, because I like it. Because <laughs> it makes me happy. Because I want to. And suddenly I realized that's a good enough reason to do anything. Being the best in the world isn't the goal for everything we're about. And so right now, I think I can categorically state I might be the best harp player in every nation, Rosebank. (laughs) But there's a very strong likelihood that in a few years, and I really hope this happens, somebody way better than me will join the worship team. And I'm going to love that. 
because my identity isn't in my harp, and I'm not going to stop playing harp when that happens. I think you understand what I'm saying. But the point that I'm really trying to make is what has God given you? And what are you doing with it? Because another issue about gifting is that there are different levels of gifting, different purposes for gifting. But I always think of gifting, if I look at this church, we are like a wall. You know one of those old-fashioned stone walls? Have you ever seen one of those stone walls where it's all different sizes, but it all fits together and it makes a wall? Well, maybe I'm only that big in the wall. Maybe I'm just that size of a pebble. But if you take me out of the wall, there's a hole in the wall. And if I'm only that big, then let me fill up my full boundary. Because otherwise, there's a hole in the wall. And it's exactly the same. If you take a bigger stone out, there's a hole in the wall. And so let us embrace and cherish our purpose. And let us be excited for what God has called us to and be it to the best of our ability. It doesn't matter that there are a million people better than you. Where has God put you? And what does he require from you? You see, character is a consistent manifestation of values and beliefs and words and actions. Character is who I really am. You see, what the world found out is that when Brianna is all made up and singing in front of a full orchestra and five-piece band, that isn't who she is. That's her talent being spectacular. But what is her character? What is your character? For me, character is an intentional response to a life that is not perfect, and that's just a little bit out of my control. Pastor Bill, who founded this church, I used to hear him say very often, a moment will not define you. And that's for good or bad. That moment where you throw yourself on the floor and have a tantrum, if it's only a moment, that can't define you. But it cuts the other way too. I once shared the gospel with somebody 15 years ago. That doesn't define you. <laughs> Lao Tzu said, he said this, watch your thoughts, they become your words. Watch your words, they become your actions. Watch your actions, they become your habits. Watch your habits, they become your character. Watch your character, it becomes your destiny. And so when Moses realized that he wasn't an Egyptian. He also realized that everything he'd worked on, he had completely ignored his character. And when you're characterless, what do you do? You run to the back end of the desert, to a place nobody ever wants to go to called Midian. And he became a shepherd. And the next 40 years of Moses' life is greatness denied. We don't really know a lot about this time. He meets his wife. <laughs> he actually has a fantastic father-in-law who I think saves his life a couple of times just through wisdom and good advice. <laughs> That's pretty much all we know about that moment. Why? There is no hope. Moses has given up. He is convinced that all he will ever be is a shepherd, and he's just resigned himself to it. Now, what did I say earlier? Where there is no hope, there will be no faith. And without faith, nothing happens. And so for 40 years, Moses is just happy to just be a shepherd, and he's very confused because he's absolutely convinced he's not an Egyptian, but is he maybe a Midianite? <laughs> but nobody wants to be a Midianite. <laughs> you know, and as a human, I can imagine that Moses was suffering from trauma. 
your adopted grandfather has an APB out of you, out on you and wants to kill you. Um, you know, everything that you grew up, all the luxury, everything you thought was your identity is just ripped away from you in a moment. And like massive opposites, from a palace to lying in the dung of sheep. It's just horrible. So he feels rejected, he feels offended, he feels trampled down. Anybody in the room ever felt that? Yeah, well, nobody wants to be honest tonight, that's okay. I'll put my hand up. But you see, what Moses hadn't figured out yet is that he is right slap bang in the center of God's plan. Now, one day he walks along and he sees a burning bush. And his curiosity gets the better of him and he goes over because this bush is burning, but it's not being consumed. And we know that is God, don't we? But as I was thinking about this, I was laughing a little bit to myself because I know as a Christian, and so many people, we all want a burning bush experience. But do you know the only reason the burning bush happened is because Moses had no hope and no faith. So God had to do something highly dramatic to get his attention. See, you and I as Christians, living with the Holy Spirit inside of it, God can just whisper and he's got our attention. And that's way better than a burning bush. And we need to go after that voice. We need to be people who know God. That does deserve a hand. You're right. (laughs) In fact, can I say something here? I think first and foremost, faith is about knowing God. The Bible says we can ask for things in faith and they will happen, and we can trust and do things in faith. But faith only comes because of who God is. If I don't know who God is, how am I going to know what he wants? And so when I only use my faith for a promotion and and a hot husband and, and new children, there's an aspect of faith that I am missing out on. (laughs) because the old ones let me down horribly. No, um, I meant babies, and then my brain stopped working for a moment. I'm old. That really is what faith is about, is to know God. And out of our knowing, we can push into him. You see, Moses thought he was rejected. He thought it was the end, because he didn't know God. And in the burning bush, he gets introduced to God for the first time in his life. But coming back to this idea that God had a plan for him, you know, it takes great faith. This is the most popular scripture in the world. It is highlighted more on version than any other scripture in the whole world. Who knows what it is? Say it. Great. We have that on mugs, on coffee, on notebooks, on our computer. Do we actually live like it's true? Because it takes great faith when you're living in Midian looking after nasty, dirty sheep to believe that God knows the plans he has for me. It takes great faith to believe what is written in Proverbs 16, verse 9, that a man plans his ways, but the Lord orders his steps. And you see what I'm saying? Until we make a plan, how can God order our steps? If we are not taking any steps, how is he going to lead us? And there's a, a, a place in faith where we see the problem. We see the nightmare. But because we know God, we say, God, you need to come in here. And I think what will help bring you here is, and I give him something that he can anoint. And I take a step, and suddenly he's he's guiding me. Suddenly he's leading my way. Moses wasn't in faith. You are. You see, what Moses didn't realize is that he was going to, form and lead a nation. He was literally going to be the prime minister of a nation. And he was going to institute for them in the first time in their history what it meant to be a people. 
More than that, he was going to bring straight from God's heart and institute organized religion in this nation. Not just that, that was going to be an absolute picture of Jesus Christ. That's the tabernacle of Moses. Who, who of those slaves had been in a palace? Only Moses. So when God started talking to Moses about gold and silver and brocades and, and beautiful fabrics, Moses knew exactly what that looked like. None of the other Israelites would have a clue what to do. Sackcloth? Is this <laughs> gold? It's, it's sort of brassy. Let's go with that. On top of that, Moses served as a shepherd for 40 years. Have you seen what shepherds do? They keep sheep from killing themselves. Damn sheep. Moses had the most unruly flock that he had to herd around a mountain for 40 years. He knew how to do it. On top of that, Moses had to have butchered sheep. That's what shepherds did. Because you, you've made your living off the flock and you used them to sustain life. You know, back in Egypt, and I, I was thinking about this and thinking, this is really a cruel thing to do. But the Egyptians made sure the Hebrews never learned how to keep flocks or how to grow crops. They provided all their food for them. Why? So that every time they thought about running into the desert, which was actually just over there, how were they going to survive? They didn't have a clue how to do any of that. And then God gave to Moses again a prophetic picture of Jesus Christ, and that was the sacrificial system. So when Moses was in, in Egypt, I'm sure he thought he was going to be a prince his whole life. But he didn't realize it was just a season so he would know what a palace looked like. When he was a shepherd, he thought he was going to just be a shepherd his whole life. But he didn't know that God was preparing him to herd a flock, and to butcher animals. What is happening in your life right now that God is planning you for the next season of your life? What's the season you are crying and begging and pleading and scratching to get out of that in 30 years you will look back on with such gratitude because you have exactly what you need now? See, God knows. Make your plans and let him order your steps. Romans 8 verse 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Do we believe that? Everything that's, that, that, that we're facing can become something God can do with us. And then thirdly, Moses has his burning bush experience, and then he starts embracing his greatness with humility. He's not arrogant anymore. Now he knows he can't do it without God. You know, Moses starts with little faith. But because God is faithful and because God exalts his word above his name, he proves to Moses that he is trustworthy. And Moses grows in his faith with God. At the burning bush, you can read in chapter 3 and 4 about that story, but Moses asks five questions of God. He says, who am I? See, Moses thought he was an Egyptian, then he wasn't, then he thought he was a Midianite, then, he was, then that's the most appropriate question any of us can ask God. Who am I? But when God answers that question, you see, we want all kinds of, of information. You're going to be the person who goes to Wits and studies law, and then you're going to work as an intern at this fantastic company, and then at 23, you're going to become the president of the nation. See, that's what we want God to say when he says, who am I? But God doesn't care about that. He cares about your heart. Because if you don't have him, all of that is going to be a disaster. And so he says things like, I love you, I see you, 
I made you. And here's the thing. When truth himself says, I love you, what are you going to do? You see, you know it's true, but you've got to decide that it's enough. Because it's still your choice tomorrow to wake up and live like truth said I love you or live like I don't believe that. So it's actually a matter of believing and receiving. And some of you, God has repeatedly said something to you. That is who you are. It's a bit of a mystery. You better go and dig it out. And then he asks God, who are you? (laughs) That's the next most profound question we could possibly ask God. Moses had never encountered God. (laughs) So he's actually saying, can I trust you? Can I believe you? God is not scared of our questions. I think God loves it when we ask questions because sometimes when we ask questions, we actually try to find faith and he will help us find it. And some of you need to stop praying and you need to ask questions and then you need to listen to what God is saying and then you pray back what he's telling you. The next question is, what if they do not believe me? I think this answer is really simple. Get over yourself and keep going. (laughs) If truth has spoken, Lord, I cannot speak. (laughs) But guess what? God has said something to you. You've got something to say. And then this is a question I have asked God a million times in my life. Can't somebody else do it? (laughs) But you see, I believe, let me give you some personal thing. I don't believe God needs me. Now, now hear what I'm saying. If tomorrow I just gave up on everything and just became a total sinner and a reprobate and you never saw me in my life again, it would be sad, but the kingdom of God would not suffer. And so what I have learned is that I get to partner with God. I get to be a part of what he's doing through faith. And I love that. That makes me really happy. And this is the answer to this question. Well, Lord, why don't you send somebody else? And God's thinking, well, I can. I actually have. But how about you? Don't you want to get involved in this? Don't you want to come and do this with me? You see, Moses' destiny was not to be a prophet. It was to be a friend of God. That was his destiny. That's all God wanted. Why? Because when God intimately knew I mean, sorry, when Moses intimately began to understand who God was, when he spoke to him, when he looked at him, when he listened to him, Moses began to get God's heart, to understand God's will and way. And because he was intimate with God, he would tell other people what God was saying. And then to them, he sounded like a prophet. See, when you know God and you talk about him, you sound like a prophet to people who don't know him. James W. Gall says that the greatest secret to hearing God's voice is cultivating a love-based, two-way relationship with him. Some of you need to stop wanting to be a prophet, and you need to start wanting to be a friend. It's all about knowing God. Everything God has ever done has been about intimacy with him. And I want to just end on this and just make a comment about prophecy in our modern age. You know, even Moses, as I said, he asked questions of God. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 26 says, do not despise prophecies. Now, in exactly the same scripture it says, but test everything. In exactly the same scripture it says, hold fast what is? So that implies that some of it might be 
there we go. There's a space in our modern world where like despise not prophecy means if the prophet speaks, I have to do it. God will never circumvent your free will. If Moses had gone, whoa, that bush is weird and scary and I want nothing to do with it, we may never have heard of him. <laughs> when he engaged God, that's when stuff started happening. And so the Bible talks a lot about judging prophecy. As a prophetic minister, I have realized that the most powerful thing I can do for you is confirm something that God has already spoken to you. That's the thing I love most. If I'm prophesying over you and I tell you stuff you've never, ever heard in your life before, you go and test it, and you hold on to what is good, and you let go of what is bad. A couple of years ago, we were on mission in a country in Africa, and um, a young woman came to me, and we were talking about some stuff, and uh, this is the story she told me. Um, I used to be an elder in a church, but they're falling into spiritual error, and I've spoken to them repeatedly, but the pastor's insisting that this Doctrine he's making up is biblical, it isn't, and eventually I resigned from eldership to, to you know, as a, as a, what do you call it, uh, my brain stopped working, as an elder to prove to them that this is wrong, that's what I'm trying to say. Um, but I'm still a part of that church because a prophet came and said, I'm going to be a pillar in the house of God. And we started talking, and eventually I just said to you, I, I had to just, I mean, I said it nice, more nicely than I'm going to say it to you, but I was like, how, where's your brain? Like, what is, what, is the, what is the house of God? The house of God is the place that holds to truth and preaches the true gospel. That's the house of God. You've done everything you can for those people. Keep praying for them. But for your own spiritual life, you need to move. But because a prophet had spoken, she just gave up all common sense and all reality. And so we need to be responsible. When, when we hear a prophetic word, it's, we need to own that and do what we need to do to, to judge it and to hold on to the good. And so tonight, as we close, as I've spoken, maybe you can just reflect for a moment and think, where are you in your life? Are you in a season of flaunting your greatness? Is there maybe a space in your life where you're more arrogant than in faith? Are you denying your greatness? Are you hiding away in Midian because you're all traumatized and freaked out. And that's just real. We get like that as humans. Maybe you've just lost some hope. Are you humbly embracing your greatness? And then I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. I'm going to speak to some very unique people in this house. Maybe you have never stepped into your greatness simply because you've never chosen to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Maybe you haven't stepped into your greatness because it's going to cost you too much to do that. But tonight I feel like if you will open up your heart to God, you will take your first step into greatness, just like when Jochebed put Moses in that basket. And from then on, you're going to make your plans, but he's going to order your steps. And so I want to ask you, if you've never really made Jesus Christ Lord and Savior, won't you just raise your hand for me? Won't you acknowledge that that's something you want to do tonight? If that's you, just put your hand up. Amen. And then secondly, I want to ask those of you who feel like maybe you're in that space of denying your greatness. Maybe there's just a space where you've lost some hope. I want you to do something brave. Remember, faith does things. And I want you just to stand up right where you are. If that's you tonight, 
and your brothers and sisters around you are going to come and lay hands on you, and we're going to pray for God to restore your faith. So if you feel like maybe you're denying your greatness, just stand up where you are tonight. Just be brave. Amen. Amen. Faith does something. And as you look around now, these people standing up, why don't you go over to them, and just with love and compassion, everybody, just stand up and find somebody, and you're going to pray for hope restored. Just pray for God to come and restore their hope in the land of Midian. Thank you, Lord. Don't let anybody not be prayed for. Father God, we just release hope on these people, oh God. God, they are created for greatness. They have gifts and talents and call and purpose on their life, oh God. And tonight, we just stand with them and we encourage their hope, Lord God. Give them a fresh glimpse of you right now, Lord Jesus. Give them a fresh glimpse of your love and your grace and your peace and your joy. And God, whatever has failed, whatever has fallen down, whether it's inside them or without them, God, we just rebuke those things right now. And we declare they shall not keep you from your purpose. They shall not keep you from your relationship with your God. And God, just restore fresh hope. God, every disappointment, every dream that has failed, like right now, Lord God, would you show yourself greater than that? And just bring healing. Bring healing in Jesus' name. Thanks, Jesus. Amen.